Chapter Five of the Empire of Russia from the Remotest Periods to the Present Time. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jean Bascom. The Empire of Russia from the Remotest Periods to the Present Time by John S. C. Abbott. Chapter Five. Mstislav and Andre from 1167 to 1212 centralization of power at kiev death of rostislav his religious character mstislav yezyslavich ascends the throne proclamation of the king its effect plans of andre scenes at kiev return and death of mstislav war in novgorod peace concluded throughout russia insult of andre and its consequences greatness of soul displayed by andre assassination of andre renewal of anarchy emigration from novgorod reign of michael the sevala the third evangelization of bulgaria death of the sevala the third his queen maria The Prince of Suzdal watched the progress of events in Occidental Russia with great interest. He saw clearly that war was impoverishing and ruining the country, and this led him to adopt the most wise and vigorous measures to secure peace within his own flourishing territories. He adopted the system of centralized power, keeping the reins of government firmly in his own hands, and appointing governors over remote provinces, who were merely the executors of his will and who were responsible to him for all their acts at kiev the system of independent appanages prevailed the lord placed at the head of a principality was an unlimited despot accountable to no one but god for his administration his fealty to the king consisted merely in an understanding that he was to follow the banner of the sovereign in case of war but in fact these feudal lords were more frequently found claiming entire independence and struggling against their nominal sovereign to wrest from his hands the sceptre. Rostislav was now far advanced in years. Conscious that death could not be far distant, he took a journey, though in very feeble health, to some of the adjacent provinces, hoping to induce them to receive his son as his successor. On this journey he died at Smolensk, 14th of March, 1167. Religious thoughts had in his latter years greatly engrossed his attention. He breathed his last, praying with a trembling voice, and fixing his eyes devoutly on an image of the Saviour, which he held devoutly in his hand. He exhibited many Christian virtues, and for many years manifested much solicitude that he might be prepared to meet God in judgment. The earnest remonstrances alone of his spiritual advisers dissuaded him from abdicating the throne, and adopting the austerities of a monastic life. He was not a man of commanding character, but it is pleasant to believe that he was, though groping in much darkness, a sincere disciple of the Saviour, and that he passed from earth to join the spirits of the just made perfect in heaven. Mstislav Yevyslavich, a nephew of the deceased king, ascended the throne. He had, however, uncles, nephews, and brothers, who were quite disposed to dispute with him the possession of power, and soon civil war was raging all over the kingdom with renewed virulence. 
Several years of destruction and misery thus passed away, during which thousands of the helpless people perished in their blood, to decide questions of not the slightest moment to them. The doom of the peasants was alike poverty and toil, whether one lord or another lord occupied the castle which overshadowed their huts. The Danaper was then the only channel through which commerce could be conducted between Russia and the Greek Empire. Barbaric nations inhabited the shores of this stream, and they had long been held in check by the Russian armies. But now the kingdom had become so enfeebled by war and anarchy, all the energies of the Russian princes being exhausted in civil strife, that the barbarians plundered with impunity the boats ascending and descending the stream, and eventually rendered the navigation so perilous that commercial communication with the empire was at an end. The Russian princes thus debarred from the necessities and luxuries which they had been accustomed to receive from the more highly civilized and polished Greeks were impelled to measures of union for mutual protection. The king, in this emergence, issued a proclamation which met with a general response. "'Russia, our beloved country,' exclaimed Mstislav, "'groans beneath the stripes which the barbarians are laying upon her, and which we are unable to avenge.' They have taken solemn oaths of friendship, they have received our presents, and now, regardless of the faith of treaties, they capture our Christian subjects and drag them as slaves into their desert wilds. There is no longer any safety for our merchant boats navigating the Danaper. The barbarians have taken possession of that only route through which we can pass into Greece. It is time for us to resort to new measures of energy. My friends and my brothers, let us terminate our unnatural war. Let us look to God for help, and, drawing the sword of vengeance, let us fall in united strength upon our savage foes. It is glorious to ascend to heaven from the field of honor, thus to follow in the footsteps of our Father. This spirited appeal was effective. The princes rallied each at the head of a numerous band of vassals, and thus a large army was soon congregated. The desire to punish the insulting barbarians inspired universal enthusiasm. The masses of the people were aroused to avenge their friends who had been carried into captivity. The priests, with prayers and anthems, blessed the banners of the faithful, and, on the 2nd of March, 1168, the army, elate with hope and nerved with vengeance, commenced their descent of the river. The barbarians, terrified by the storm which they had raised, and from whose fury they could attain no shelter, fled so precipitately that they left their wives and their children behind them. The Russians, abandoning the encumbrance of their baggage, pursued them in the hottest haste. Over the hills and through the valleys, and across the streams, pursuers and pursued rushed on, until at last the fugitives were overtaken upon the banks of a deep and rapid stream, which they were unable to cross. Mercilessly they were massacred, many Russian prisoners were rescued, and booty to an immense amount was taken. For these river pirates were rich, having for years been plundering the commerce of Greece and Russia. According to the custom of those days, the booty was divided between the princes and the soldiers, each man receiving according to his rank. As the army returned in triumph to the Danaper, to their boundless satisfaction they saw the pennants of a merchant fleet ascending the river from Constantinople, laden with the riches of the empire. The army crowded the shores and greeted the barges with all the demonstrations of exultation and joy. The punishment of the barbarians being thus effectually accomplished, the princes immediately commenced anew their strife. 
all their old feuds were revived every lord wished to increase his own power and to diminish that of his natural rival andre of suzdal to whom we have before referred whose capital was the little village of moscow far away in the interior deemed the moment favourable for dethroning Mstislav and extending the area of such freedom as his subjects enjoyed over the realms of Novgorod and Kiev. He succeeded in uniting eleven princes with him in his enterprise. His measures were adopted with great secrecy. Assembling his armies, curtained by leagues of forests, he, unobserved, commenced his march toward the Danifer. The banners of the numerous army were already visible from the steeples of Kiev before the sovereign was appraised of his danger. For two days the storms of war beat against the walls and roared around the battlements of the city, when the besiegers, bursting over the walls, swept the streets in horrid carnage. This mother of the Russian cities had often been besieged and often capitulated, but never before had it been taken by storm, and never before, and never since, have the horrors of war been more sternly exhibited for three days and three nights the city and its inhabitants were surrendered to the brutal soldiery the imagination shrinks from contemplating the awful scene the world of woe may be challenged to exhibit anything worse fearful indeed must be the corruption when man can be capable of such inhumanity to his fellow-man war unchains the tiger and shows his nature Mstislav the sovereign in the midst of the confusion the uproar and the blood succeeded almost as by a miracle in escaping from the wretched city basely however abandoning his wife and his children to the enemy thus fell kiev for some centuries it had been the capital of russia it was such no more the victorious andre of moscow was now by the energies of his sword sovereign of the empire Kiev became but a provincial and tributary city, which the sovereign placed under the governorship of his brother Gleb. Nearly all the provinces of known Russia were now more or less tributary to Andre. Three princes only preserved their independence. As the army of Andre retired, Gleb was left in possession of the throne of Kiev. In those days there were always many petty princes, ready to embark with their followers in any enterprise which promised either glory or booty. Mstislav, the fugitive sovereign, soon gathered around him his semi-savage bands, entered the province of Kiev, plundering and burning the homes of his former subjects. As he approached Kiev, Gleb, unprepared for efficient resistance, was compelled to seek safety in flight. The inhabitants of the city, to escape the horrors of another siege and sack, threw open their gates and crowded out to meet their former monarch as a returning friend. Mstislav entered the city in triumph and quietly reseated himself upon the throne. He, however, ascended it but to die. A sudden disease seized him, and the songs of triumph which greeted his entrance died away in requiems and wailings, as he was borne to the silent tomb. With dying breath he surrendered his throne to his younger brother, Yaroslav. Andrei at Moscow had other formidable engagements on hand which prevented his interposition in the affairs of Kiev. The Novgorodians had bidden defiance to his authority, and their subjugation was essential before any troops could be spared to chastise the heir of Mstislav. The Novgorodian army had even penetrated the realms of Andrei and were exacting tribute from his provinces. The Grand Prince, Andrei himself, was far advanced in years, opposed to war, and had probably been pushed on in his enterprises by the ambition of his son, 
who was also named Mstislav. This young prince was impetuous and fiery, greedy for military glory and restless in his graspings for power. The Novgorodians were also warlike and indomitable. The conflict between two such powers arrested the attention of all Russia. Mstislav made the most extensive preparations for the attack upon the Novgorodians, and they, in their turn, were equally energetic in preparations for the defense. The army marched from Moscow, and following the valley of the Masta, entered the spacious province of Novgorod. They entered the region not like wolves, not like men, but like demons. The torch was applied to every hut, to every village, to every town. They amused themselves with tossing men, women, and children upon their campfires, glowing like furnaces. The sword and the spear were two merciful instruments of death. The flames of the burning towns blazed along the horizon night after night, and the cry of the victims roused the Novgorodians to the intensest thirst for vengeance. With the sweep of utter desolation, Mstislav approached the city, and when his army stood before the walls, there was behind him a path, leagues in width, and two hundred miles in length, covered with ruins, ashes, and the bodies of the dead. It was the 25th of February, 1170. The city was immediately summoned to surrender. The Novgorodians, appalled by the fate of Kiev, and by the horrors which had accompanied the march of Mstislav, took a solemn oath that they would struggle to the last drop of blood in defense of their liberties. The clergy in procession, bearing the image of the Virgin in their arms, traversed the fortifications of the city, and with prayers, hymns, and the most imposing Christian rites, inspired the soldiers with religious enthusiasm. The Novgorodians threw themselves upon their knees, and in simultaneous prayer cried out, with the blending of ten thousand voices, O oh God, come and help us, come and help us! Thus roused to frenzy, with the clergy chanting hymns of battle, and pleading with heaven for success, with the image of the Virgin contemplating their deeds, the soldiers rushed from behind their ramparts upon the foe. Death was no longer dreaded. The only thought of every man was to sell his life as dearly as possible. Such an onset of maniacal energy no mortal force could stand. The soldiers of Mstislav fell as the waving grain bows before the tornado. Their defeat was utter and awful. Mercy was not thought of. Sword and javelin cried only for blood, blood. The wretched Mstislav in dismay fled, leaving two-thirds of his army in gory death, and in his flight he met that chastisement which his cruelties merited. He had to traverse a path two hundred miles in length, along which not one field of grain had been left undestroyed, and where every dwelling was in ashes, and no animal life whatever had escaped his ravages. Starvation was his doom. Every rod of the way his emaciated soldiers dropped dead in their steps. Famine also, with all its woes, reigned in Novgorod. Under these circumstances the two parties consented to peace the Novgorodians retaining their independence, but accepting a brother of the Grand Prince Andrei to succeed their own prince, who was then at the point of death. Andrei, having thus terminated the strife with Novgorod by the peace which he loved, turned his attention to Kiev, and with characteristic humanity gratified the wishes of the inhabitants by allowing them to accept Roman, Prince of Smolensk, as their chieftain. Roman entered the city, greeted by the most flattering testimonials of the joy of the inhabitants, while they united with him in the oath of allegiance to André as the sovereign of Russia. André, who was ever disposed to establish his sovereign power, 
not by armies, but by equity and moderation, and who seems truly to have felt that the welfare of Russia required that all its provinces should be united under common laws and a common sovereign, turned his attention again to Novgorod, hoping to persuade its inhabitants to relinquish their independence and ally themselves with the general empire. Rurik, the brother of André, who had been appointed Prince of Novgorod, proved unpopular, and was driven from his command. André, instead of endeavouring to force him back upon them by the energies of his armies, with a wise spirit of conciliation acquiesced in their movement, and sent to them his younger son, George, as a prince, offering to assist them with his counsel and to aid them with his military force whenever they should desire it. Thus internal peace was established throughout the empire. By gradual advances, and with great sagacity, André, from his humble palace in Moscow, extended his influence over the remote provinces and established his power. The princes of Kiev and its adjacent provinces became jealous of the encroachments of André, and hostile feelings were excited. The king at length sent an ambassador to them with very imperious commands. The ambassador was seized at Kiev, his hair and beard shaven, and was then sent back to Moscow with the defiant message, "'Until now we have wished to respect you as a father, but since you do not blush to treat us as vassals and as peasants, since you have forgotten that you speak to princes, we spurn your menaces. Execute them. We appeal to the judgment of God.' This grievous insult of word and deed roused the indignation of the aged monarch as it had never been roused before. He assembled an army of fifty thousand men who were rendezvoused at Novgorod, and placed under the command of the king's son, Georges. Another army, nearly equal in number, was assembled at Chernigov, collected from the principalities of Polotsk, Turov, Grodno, Pinsk, and Smolensk. The bands of this army were under the several princes of the provinces. Sviatoslav, grandson of the renowned Olga, was entrusted with the supreme command. These two majestic forces were soon combined upon the banks of the Danaper. All resistance fled before them, and with strides of triumph they marched down the valley to Kiev. The princes who had aroused this storm of war fled to Voyoychigorod, an important fortress further down the river, where they strongly entrenched themselves and sternly awaited the advance of the foe. The royalist forces, having taken possession of Kiev, pursued the fugitives. The march of armies so vast, conducting war upon so grand a scale, excited the astonishment of all the inhabitants upon the river's banks. A little fortress, defended by a mere handful of men, appeared to them an object unworthy of an army sufficiently powerful to crush an empire. But in the fortress there was perfect unity, and its commander had the soul of a lion. In the camp of the besiegers there was neither harmony nor zeal, Many of the princes were inimical to the king, and were jealous of his growing power. Others were envious of Sviatoslav, the commander-in-chief, and were willing to sacrifice their own fame that he might be humbled. Not a few even were in sympathy with the insurgents, and were almost disposed to unite under their banners. It was the 8th of September, 1173, when the royalist forces encircled the fortress. Gunpowder was then unknown, and contending armies could only meet hand to hand. For two months the siege was continued, with bloody conflicts every day. Wintry winds swept the plains, and storms of snow whitened the fields when, from the battlements of the fortress, the besieged saw the banners of another army approaching the arena. 
they knew not whether the distant battalions were friends or foe but it was certain that their approach would decide the strife for each party was so exhausted as to be unable to resist any new assailants soon the signals of war proclaimed that an army was approaching for the rescue of the fortress shouts of exultation rose from the garrison which fell like the knell of death upon the ears of the besiegers freezing on the plains the alarm which spread through the camp was instantaneous and terrible the darkness of a november night soon settled down over city and plain with the first rays of the morning the garrison were upon the walls when to their surprise they saw the whole vast army in rapid and disordered flight the plains around the fortress were utterly deserted and covered with the wrecks of war the garrison immediately rushed from behind their ramparts united with their approaching friends and pursued the fugitives the royalists in their dismay attempted to cross the river on the fragile ice it broke beneath the enormous weight and thousands perished in the cold stream the remainder of this great host were almost to a man either slain or taken captive their whole camp and baggage fell into the hands of the conquerors this wonderful victory achieved by the energies of mstislav has given him a name in russian annals as one of the most renowned and brave of the princes of the empire george the prince of novgorod son of andre escaped from the carnage of that ensanguined field and overwhelmed with shame returned to his father in moscow the king in this extremity developed true greatness of soul he exhibited neither dejection nor anger but bowed to the calamity as to a chastisement he needed from god the victory of the insurgents if they may be so called who occupied the provinces in the valley of the janiper was not promotive either of prosperity or peace mindful of the former grandeur of kiev as the ancient capital of the russian empire ambitious princes were immediately contending for the possession of that throne after several months of confusion and blood andre succeeded by skilful diplomacy in again inducing them for the sake of general tranquillity to come under the general government of the empire the nobles could not but respect him as the most aged of their princes as a man of imperial energy and ability and as the one most worthy to be their chief he alone had the power to preserve tranquillity in extended russia they therefore applied to him to take kiev under certain restrictions again into his protection and to nominate for that city a prince who should be in his alliance this homage was acceptable to andre but while he was engaged in this negotiation a conspiracy was formed against the monarch and he was cruelly assassinated it was the night of the twenty ninth of june eleven seventy four the king was sleeping in a chateau two miles from moscow at midnight the conspirators twenty in number having inflamed themselves with brandy burst into the house and rushed towards the chamber where the aged monarch was reposing the clamour awoke the king and he sprang from the bed just as two of the conspirators entered his chamber aged as the monarch was with one blow of his vigorous arm he felled the foremost to the floor the comrade of the assassin in the confusion thinking it was the king who had fallen plunged his poignard to the hilt in his companion's breast other assassins rushed in and fell upon the monarch he was a man of gigantic powers and struggled against his foes with almost supernatural energy filling the chateau with his shrieks for help at last pierced with innumerable wounds he fell in his blood apparently silent in death the assassins terrified by the horrible scene and apprehensive that the guard might come to the rescue of the king caught up their dead comrade and fled 
the monarch had however but fainted he almost instantly revived and with impetuosity and bravery seized his sword and gave chase to the murderers shouting with all his strength to his attendants to hasten to his aid the assassins turned upon him they had lanterns in their hands and were twenty to one the first blow struck off the right arm of the king a sabre thrust pierced his heart passed through his body and the monarch fell dead his last words were lord into thy hands i commit my spirit there is to this day preserved a scimitar of grecian workmanship which tradition says was the sword of andre upon the blade is inscribed in greek letters holy mother of god assist thy servant the death of the monarch was the signal for the universal outbreak of violence and crime where the sovereign is the only law the death of the monarch is the destruction of the government the anarchy which sometimes succeeded his death was awful the russian analysts cherish the memory of andre affectionately they say that he was courageous sagacious and a true christian and that he merited the title he had received of a second solomon had he established his throne in the more central city of kiev instead of the remote village of moscow he could more efficiently have governed the empire but blinded by his love for his own northern realms he was ambitious of elevating his own native village unfavorable as was its location into the capital of the empire during his whole reign he manifested great zeal in extending christianity through the empire and evinced great interest in efforts for the conversion of the jews just before the death of the king a number of the inhabitants of novgorod fatigued with civil strife and crowded out by the density of the population formed a party to emigrate to the uninhabited lands far away in the east traversing a region of about three hundred miles on the parallel of fifty-seven degrees of latitude they reached the headwaters of the volga here they embarked in boats and drifted down the wild stream for a thousand miles to the mouth of the river kama where they established a colony at this point they were twelve hundred miles north of the point where the volga empties into the caspian other adventurers soon followed and flourishing colonies sprang up all along the banks of the kama and the viatha this region was the missouri valley of russia by this immigration the russian name its manners its institutions were extended through a sweep of a thousand miles the colonists had many conflicts with the aboriginal inhabitants but russian civilization steadily advanced over barbaric force soon after the death of andre the nobles of that region met in a public assembly to organize some form of confederate government one of the speakers rose and said no one is ignorant of the manner in which we have lost our king he has left but one son who reigns at novgorod the brothers of andre are in southern russia who then shall we choose for our sovereign let us elect michael of chernigov he is the oldest son of monomach and the most ancient of the princes of his family ambassadors were immediately sent to michael offering him the throne and promising him the support of the confederate princes michael hastened to moscow with a strong army supported by several princes and took possession of moscow and the adjacent provinces a little opposition was manifested which he speedily quelled with the sword great rejoicings welcomed the enthronement of a new prince and the restoration of order michael proved worthy of his elevation he immediately traversed the different provinces in that region and devoted himself to the tranquillity and prosperity of his people the popularity of the new sovereign was at its height 
all lips praised him all hearts loved him he was declared to be a special gift which heaven in its boundless mercy had conferred unfortunately this virtuous prince reigned but one year leaving however in that short time upon the russian annals many memorials of his valour and of his virtue it was a barbaric age rife with perfidy and crime yet not one act of treachery or cruelty had sullied his name it was his ambition to be the father of his people and the glory he sought was the happiness and the greatness of his country southern russia was still in the theatre of interminable civil war the provinces were impoverished and kiev was fast sinking to decay michael had a brother vsevolod who had accompanied him to moscow the nobles and the leading citizens their eyes still dim with the tears which they had shed over the tomb of their sovereign urged him to accept the crown he was not reluctant to accede to their request and received their oaths of fidelity to him under the title of vsevolod the third his title however was disputed by distant princes and an armed band approaching moscow by surprise seized the town and reduced it to ashes ravaged the surrounding region and carried off the women and children as captives vsevolod was at the time absent in the extreme northern portion of his territory but he turned upon his enemies with the heart and with the strength of a lion it was midwinter regardless of storms and snow and cold he pursued the foe like the north wind and crushed them as with an iron hand with a large number of prisoners he returned to the ruins of moscow two of the most illustrious of the hostile princes were among the prisoners the people enraged at the destruction of their city fell upon the captives and seizing the two princes tore out their eyes vsevolod was a young man who had not acquired renown many of the warlike princes of the spacious provinces regarded his elevation with envy sviatoslav prince of chernigov was roused to intense hostility and gathering around him the nobles of his province resolved with a vigorous arm to seize for himself the throne enlisting in his interest several other princes he commenced his march against his sovereign vsevolod prepared with vigour to repulse his assailants after long and weary marchings the two armies met in the defiles of the mountains a swift mountain stream rushing along its rocky bed between deep and precipitous banks separated the combatants for a fortnight they vainly assailed each other hurling clouds of arrows and javelins across the stream which generally fell harmless upon brazen helmet and buckler but few were wounded and still fewer slain yet neither party dared venture the passage of the stream in the presence of the other at length weary of the unavailing conflict sviatoslav the insurgent chief led a challenge to vsevolod the sovereign let god said he decide the dispute between us let us enter into the open field with our two armies and submit the question to the arbitrament of battle you may choose either side of the river which you please vsevolod did not condescend to make any reply to the rebellious prince seizing his ambassadors he sent them as captives to vladimir a fortress some hundred miles east of moscow he hoped thus to provoke sviatoslav to attempt the passage of the stream but sviatoslav was not to be thus entrapped breaking up his camp he retired to novgorod where he was received with rejoicings by the inhabitants here he established himself as a monarch accumulated his forces and began by diplomacy and by arms to extend his conquests over the adjacent principalities he sent a powerful army to descend the banks of the danaper 
capturing all the cities on the right hand and on the left, and binding the inhabitants by oaths of allegiance. The army advancing with resistless strides arrived before the walls of Kiev, took possession of the deserted palaces of this ancient capital, and Sviatoslav proclaimed himself monarch of southern Russia. But while Sviatoslav was thus prosecuting his conquests, at the distance of four hundred miles south of Novgorod, Vesevolod advanced with an army to this city, and was in his turn received by the Novgorodians with the ringing of bells, bonfires, and shouts of welcome. All the surrounding princes and nobles promptly gave in their adhesion to the victorious sovereign, and Sviatoslav found that all his conquests had vanished as by magic from beneath his hand. Under these circumstances, Vesevolod and Sviatoslav were both inclined to negotiation. As the result, it was agreed that Vesevolod should be recognized as the monarch of Russia, and that Sviatoslav should reign as tributary prince of Kiev. To bind anew the ties of friendship, Vesevolod gave in marriage his beautiful sister to the youngest son of Sviatoslav. Thus this civil strife was terminated. But the gates of the Temple of Janus were not yet to be closed. Foreign war now commenced, enraged with unusual ferocity. Six hundred miles east of Moscow was the country of Bulgaria. It comprehended the present Russian province of Orenburg, and was bounded on the east by the Ural Mountains, and on the west by the Volga. A population of nearly a million and a half inhabited this mountainous realm. Commerce and arts flourished, and the people were enriched by their commerce with the Grecian Empire. They were, however, barbarians, and as even in the nineteenth century the slave trade is urged as a means of evangelizing the heathen of Africa, war was urged with its carnage and woe as the agent of disseminating Christianity through pagan Bulgaria. The motive assigned for the war was to serve Christ by the conversion of the infidel. The motives which influenced were ambition, love of conquest, and the desire to add to the opulence and the power of Russia. Vesevolod made grand preparations for this enterprise. Conferring with the warlike Sviatoslav and other ambitious princes, a large army was collected at the headwaters of the Volga. They floated down the wild stream in capacious flat-bottomed barges till they came to the mouth of the Kama. Thus far their expedition had been like the jaunt of a gala day. Summer warmth and sunny skies had cheered them as they floated down the romantic stream, through forests, between mountains, and along flowery savannas, with pennants floating gaily in the air, and music swelling from their martial bands. War has always its commencement of pomp and pageantry, followed by its terminations of woe and despair. The Sevalade in person led the army. Near the mouth of the Kama they abandoned their flotilla, which could not be employed in ascending the rapid stream. Continuing their march by land, they pushed boldly into the country of the Bulgarians, and laid siege to their capital, which was called the Great City. For six days the battle raged, and the city was taken. It proved, however, to be but a barren conquest. An arrow from the walls pierced the side of a beloved nephew of Vesevolod. The young man, in excruciating agony, died in the arms of the monarch. Vesevolod was so much affected by the sufferings which he was thus called to witness, that, dejected and disheartened, he made the best terms he could, soothing his pride by extorting from the vanquished a vague acknowledgment of subjugation to the empire. He then commenced his long march of toil and suffering back again to Moscow, over vast plains and through dense forests, having really accomplished nothing of any moment. 
the reign of vassalavalad continued for thirty-seven years it was a scene of incessant conflict with insurgent princes disputing his power and struggling for the supremacy often his imperial title was merely nominal again a successful battle would humble his foes and bring them in subjugation to the foot of his throne but on the whole during his reign the fragmentary empire gained solidity the monarchial arm gained strength and the sovereign obtained a more marked supremacy above the rival princes who had so long disputed the power of the throne the Sevillod died generally regretted on the twelfth of april twelve twelve in the russian annals he has received the surname of great his reign compared with that of most of his predecessors was happy he left in churches and in fortresses many monuments of his devotion and of his military skill his wife maria seems to have been a woman of sincere piety her brief pilgrimage on earth passed six hundred years ago led her through the same joys and griefs which in the nineteenth century oppress human hearts the last seven years of her life she passed on a bed of sickness and extreme suffering the patience she displayed caused her to be compared with the patriarch job just before she died she assembled her six surviving children around her bed as with tears they gazed upon the emaciated cheeks of their beloved and dying mother she urged them to love god to study the bible to give their hearts to the saviour and to live for heaven she died universally regretted and revered the reign of vesevolod was contemporaneous with the conquest of constantinople by the crusaders the latin or roman church thus for a season extended its domination over the greek or eastern church the french and venetians robbed the rich churches of constantine with their paintings statuary relics and all their treasures of art the greek emperor himself fled in disguise to thrace the roman pontiff innocent the third deeming this a favourable moment to supplant the greek religion in russia sent letters to the russian clergy in which he said the religion of rome is becoming universally triumphant the whole grecian empire has recognized the spiritual power of the pope will you be the only people who refuse to enter into the fold of christ and to recognize the roman church as the ark of salvation out of which no one can be saved i have sent you a cardinal a man noble well instructed and legate of the successors of the apostles he has received full power to enlighten the minds of the russians and to rescue them from all their errors this pastoral exhortation was entirely unavailing the bishops and clergy of the russian church still pertinaciously adhered to the faith of their fathers the crusaders were ere long driven from the imperial city and the greek church again attained its supremacy in the east a supremacy which it has maintained to the present day End of chapter 5